0: Good morning. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday School. Sunday morning, 10 a.m. I am up and at them. Got to get me a quick drink here. Nothing like water. Uh, I just recently published a video on the Platonic and Neoplatonic uh, worldview. From antiquity, that I think you're going to find truly delightful. Sincerely, it's on the world soul. Uh, I took a hike yesterday morning on Saturday, and I went into the mountains and I did some delicious videos, and I put those in this uh, this video that I just uploaded, and I share some really wonderful information from the Greeks with you. So. Do go enjoy that as you have time, and I am going to be putting that in my podcasts, hopefully a little later today, along with my Why I Am Not an Atheist video. I will also upload that into the podcast, and those can be found in the backyardprofessor.org. So just so you know, hey, JB, maybe. Good morning from the new rainy New York City. Yes, rainy New York, huh? We've got a wonderful, sunny, bright morning this morning here. So, but I'm glad I could make your rainy day. (laughs) Okay. I want to, uh, I want to, uh, begin with an opening prayer. (laughs) Anybody want to volunteer? Raise your hands. (laughs) Okay. uh, Hold on. I would much rather give an opening thought. So let's, uh, let's go with that. I'm going to, uh, discuss the the new interpretation, what I would call the new interpretation of uh, Genesis from some Mormon biologists, a Mormon interpretation of Genesis with the, the very real, this is not guesswork, this is real knowledge of tests of the fossils of tests of how cells function, of how the chemistry of life works, of how the relationship of the sun with the earth works. So we're not only going to look at Genesis from a uh, a somewhat biological viewpoint, but we're going to look at Genesis from a theological Cosmological viewpoint, also with the integrated knowledge that we have. And what this is going to do for us, interestingly enough, is it's going to show us that there is no single one correct way to interpret Genesis. Number one, the theological understanding is not complete. But on the other hand, neither is the scientific. We continue. I mean, the James Webb Telescope has presented some information to us now that is truly startling. If you hold your arm out arms' length and hold up a dime and cover a certain section of the sky, that little section, that little pinpointed dark section, from Earth view, when the James Webb Telescope focused on that little space, it showed over a thousand galaxies. And each of those galaxies have hundreds of billions of stars. And these go way, way back in time and space, hundreds of millions of light years away. And there are thousands and thousands of galaxies we have never seen before. We had no idea existed. So cosmology is also improving. It's increasing. It's elaborating. It's enlarging. It is helping get a more complete picture of this utterly mind-blowing cosmos that we all live in. So science and cosmology does not have the last word either, but they never claimed it did, at least not until recent modern times. And those fundamentalist scientists are just wrong. That's as far as I'm going to take it with that. I will be producing more videos showing the The dogmatic aspects of science has unfortunately entered into the arena and it is not for the betterment of science or humanity. But that's another issue. Right now, what I want to focus on is just recognizing that Just as surely as the Orthodox, I'll put it this way, I I love picking on the Orthodox view for this reason, because when we approach history, in history, and it really is irrelevant, which epistemological subject we choose to focus on, the Orthodox interpretation of whatever it was has never been correct. Now that gives us pause. There is always something else that comes out because again, I've said this several times in my videos and I will repeat this because apparently it has not registered with the two communities we're going to be talking about it, at least individuals within these two communities. It has not registered here and here in the heart with the scientific community, that we genuinely are finite beings, we cannot see the whole. Now, there's a uh, there's a text. Hang on, I've got to get this. I know I'm doing the backyard professor thing, but it's well worth it. I promise. Uh, There is a text that is called, this is one of the most recent texts scientifically, and I'm not even joking, this is by a well-known particle physicist. Or experimental particle physicist at the University of California, Irvine. He's a fellow of the American Physical Society. He conducts research using the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. This guy is nobody's mini. He knows his material. Let's not add hominem and say, well, he's just a scientist. No, he is a scientist. This is critical to understand what he says in his book, We Have No Idea. He's not bluffing. The title fits the information. 350 pages worth of information. A fairly thick book, superbly written for the layman like you and I. And this is a guide to the unknown universe by George Cham and Daniel Whiteson. He concludes, he says, at this magnificent time in our human understanding of the cosmos, sincerely, we know only 4% of the universe so there is no room for arrogance. Now, this is a scientist. This is not a Baptist preacher trying to convince you that God exists and atheism is false. That's not what this is about. This is about a refocus. This is about a re-huddle and a re-examination of one, our epistemologically going off the tracks in imagining that, oh, well, we've got all of this under control. We don't even know 4% yet. So a little bit and a lot a bit of humility is absolutely called for. Now, that's the scientific end of the equation. On the religious side of the equation, we also have discovered that orthodoxy has no claim Uh, forget orthodoxy. We are in the midst of a mix. We are in the midst of a rumble, tumble. Let's learn what we can. We don't live long enough to read very much anyway. Our knowledge is going to be limited not only because of our biology and not only because of our chemistry. Our brains are only hardwired a certain way and we only get a small smidgen of information on the vast infinite space spectrum of wavelengths for our vision, for our hearing, for our smell. Our language is limited. Our English, whether it's German, whether it's French, whether it's Swahili, whether it's Japanese, it doesn't matter. No language is all inclusive. It constantly evolves and morphs and changes and adds to our accumulated knowledge as we proceed to properly look, try to experiment, etc. The, the My whole reason for giving this huge diatribe of an introduction is to recognize that no one has the last word. This is so important to understand. We are still in the midst of discovery. And if we truly only have four to five percent of understanding of our universe according to one of the great particle physical scientists then we're not done we've only taken the first step out of the gate in this hundred yard dash there are some who are claiming we've already crossed the finish line they're safe to ignore i don't care what their credentials are They don't have a clue. They have gotten so arrogant, so all consumed with what they think they know. And that even changes that there is no finality yet. So what we have here is a comparative analysis. What we need to do realistically is to come to an understanding of our limitations. Right? Truly. And we have them, and they are severe. Now, this does not go the other direction in a wild flight of fantasy that we're never going to know. Let's not go off on that extreme of the pendulum. (laughs) We're going to do the (laughs) we're going to do the kabbalistic exercise, the very proper kabbalistic exercise of finding balance. We don't want to go off way off on this side, nor on this side, because it is the balance. And again, wonderful stuff. The Jews, the ancient Jews, they had it. They knew that it takes a balance point. Well, when we look at the ancient Chinese, we see the same thing in their magnificent symbol of the yin yang, that, that swirl that, that uh, swirls around the yin-yang, there is a balance. When we get out of balance, then destruction of the old knowledge occurs if we go too far, one side or the other. And that involves both religion or science, right? So the reason I'm contexting all of this quick information for you is because when we read the book of Genesis, now, The one thing I have noticed, which is probably only seeable if you take the time to do the studying yourself, which has never been encouraged in Mormonism much, except in Joseph Smith's day, and then once he died, they said, whew, now we can quit working our brains so hard and just kind of float through this noise, much to their detriment. The study of the scripture, Genesis, and and I am picking the Bible on purpose. One, I'm I'm in America, I'm in the West, so that's the text, right? There's other fantastic creation stories uh, from the ancient mythologies who properly had a context of not a literalism per se, but as more of a story a mythological there is a wider application to the knowledge and they knew more than we've ever given them credit for that also is for several more videos coming down the line eventually (laughs) i only see i'm limited too i only have so much time to prepare and present videos right you only have so much time to watch them (laughs) so hey welcome Dega Vertigo, excellent point. Dega Vertigo makes a fantastic point. He said just 100 years ago, we had the static universe. And that, of course, based on what evidence we have and how we're interpreting it, I was just watching some – videos this week on just this topic too, the cosmology, the changing nature of our understanding of the cosmos. And that has not stopped. Uh, Some of the ways in which we've done detective work has been absolutely fantastic. The ingenuity of using light to test the chemical spectra of planets and galaxies the redshift concept of the entire galaxies, which Einstein, had he not been so dogmatic, the math showed him that. He could have discovered the expanding universe. Instead, he he wanted to keep it static. That's where he introduced his cosmological constant, the biggest blunder of his scientific career, he says. And, and so on. So anyway, that's, that's another video. It's fun material to, to study without question. Hey, Pat, had a thought. Good morning. Good to see you, my friend. I'm just getting ready to, I've been doing a diatribe on the dogmatism of both science and religion. Uh, and of course, both sides are going to kick me in the teeth for it because they think I'm all wet behind the ears. and They're going to be surprised with what they learn if they watch my videos. I'm not as wet behind my ears as you might suppose, but I'm no expert either. I'm an avid reader, and I promise that'll be demonstrated in future videos. But in the meantime, this principle of studying Genesis. Now, of course, we at this point, truly, we should be aware that there have been varying interpretations. And I mean, even Joseph Smith in the King Follett discourse, he translated the Hebrew, even though he mangled it pretty bad. He he retranslated the Hebrew to come up with yet again another uh, potential view. Yes, he mangled the Hebrew, but his idea has some ancient precedence. That's not to say he divinely, genuinely restored the true meaning of Genesis. All of that noise is a uh, churchy religion. I'll put it that way. And their interpretations, I know they love to imagine that God, the creator of the universe, is giving them the actual true knowledge, but they never take a stance about evolution. So obviously, God ain't talking to them. They can't fool us all the time. that That's just the way it is. So their theology is uh, constantly being upgraded. Now, in a way, yeah, yes, we we do take notice of that, and sometimes it's too good to not kind of uh, make fun of and poke them in the ribs a little bit and all that. I get that. But on the other hand, the progressive, theme in Mormonism, which they themselves, of course, can't stand, but they have no choice because of the theological base which Joseph Smith gave them, this idea of continuing revelation should show those ninnies in Salt Lake City that they have no right to come down solid. This is the correct doctrine forever because their doctrines change through new revelation. And it has to be that way simply because, once again, we are finite beings. We do only know 4% of the universe. Even the Salt Lake City boys, they're not kidding me. If they want to tell me they have the whole picture, they don't. They love to imagine and say that, well, no, we don't have all of it, but we have the essentials. I don't even buy that much. We don't even have the essentials of very much at all in any of the life sciences. That is constantly morphing, expanding, changing, going back on itself, correcting, etc. That's exactly what we see happening in Mormonism. So in that regard, the progressivism of Mormonism can be seen in a positive light. Unfortunately, on social issues, they really wipe themselves out for credibility, right? They just can't come up to snuff with so much. Hey, Debbie Joe, good morning. Good to see you. So anyway, I'm just getting riled up here. Okay, so let's look at Genesis from two Mormon evolutionary biologists, And so this is interesting because of what they say. They say the the previous uh, interpretations of Genesis, the Genesis that they were raised up to believe. And I think these gentlemen are pretty close to my age. I'm in my 60s, young 60s. I act like I'm 18 sometimes, for which I constantly have to apologize, but that's neither here nor there. If it is correct, is the creation story in Genesis wrong? If the scientific materials, that's the question, that's the basis. Rather than seeing it in black and white, wrong or right, however, there is a more nuanced, and I know this drives people nuts, there's very precious little choice, however, there's a more nuanced way to integrate many different views into Genesis. To Attempt at this point in time, and here's where I've somewhat changed during my post-apologetic era that I'm in right now, um, rather than saying I finally have the answer and that there's one interpretation, I keep open and I read all the interpretations and I try to integrate what I can because we just don't have finality. Even if it's in scripture, we still don't have finality. We have to come to grips with this. These guys are trying to do that. And and I think they do a decent job. Some of their interpretations of Genesis, I'm very excited to get to, to show you, are extremely intriguing. And they do show how the brethren in their dogmatic doctrinal approaches have been blatantly, outrageously wrong. Amazing enough. Yeah. So for hundreds of faithful LDS biologists, they're saying the answer is no. The creation story in Genesis is not wrong. I would agree with that. I would say it's incomplete. Yeah, that's my approach. So incomplete is not wrong. Different uh, storyline from other ancient texts from other ancient creation stories does not mean one of them's right and one of them's wrong no we're all struggling in this together that would be in my opinion the safer bet to approach this with so uh in fact, we believe that the Genesis story is compatible with evolution, so they are compatibilists. So let's see what they've got to offer. In the process of offering it, I do think they do suggest they don't have final answers either, but there's a more compatible point of view than not. So let's see what these guys approach it like. Some of the problems that appear to exist arise not from the scriptures, but from traditions that go beyond what the scriptures state. Now, that is a very salient point. Unfortunately, some of those traditions that really do go beyond the scripture are the dogmatic wishes of some of the brethren, like Joseph Fielding Smith, which I ranted and raved about the other night, and which I will continue ranting and raving about. But today I'm going to try to keep a little bit more of a lid on it because we're exploring the actual scriptural text. So, uh the processes of nature and scripture are not at odds well that's you know that's their take I don't know if I agree with that or not but let's see what they've got So in this discussion we will raise many questions most of which we cannot answer Now there's a, a good approach right there let's see. That, that's correct. We are exploring. We are not ending. We are not at the arrival point of the journey. We are flat out in the journey. <laughs> uh, hey, Chats Philosopher, welcome. Good to see you. Um, I don't know. I might have to do that another time. He wants to ask, with will the two varying creation stories cited in Genesis be investigated? We'll see what these guys talk about. I think they do discuss it. Oh, Debbie Joe, you are way too kind. BYP is my favorite Sunday school teacher. Oh, that's just, you're making me blush now. So in raising these questions, here's their modus operandi. In raising these questions, we are attempting to follow God's commandments to mediate, to meditate mediate to meditate upon the scriptures and to study my word. Okay, that's well and fine. I, I can't argue with that. That's good. We intend only to point out what we all read in the scriptures differently, and that most people do not search and ponder them, but simply gloss over the difficult parts. Who boy? I, I think they've got the pulse their finger on the pulse here for believing Mormons. The full meaning of the scriptures is given only by revelation through the influence of the Holy ghost. And then they took their finger off the pulse <laughs> because I don't believe they know how that functions. I I, I seriously don't. Uh, um, yeah. So I think what's happening is they've got to, uh, They've got to remain in good with the brethren, so they have to throw them a little bit of a, you know, treat every now and then and say, yeah, we're not completely destroying your idiot theology. Uh, you know, we we still like you. Calm down, boys. Here, have a pat on the head and sit down, Boyd K. Packer. Thank goodness he's gone. So there are many unofficial interpretations, and these are often based on tradition. The fact is, the entire LDS doctrine of the creation is a tradition, and it is unofficial. They said, well, we get it by revelation. It doesn't matter. It changes nonstop. I was told the endowment was given by revelation, and that is, it is the pristine, pure spiritual truth. And yet, how much has that endowment changed? Well, couldn't God get it right the first time? You see, these kind of questions pop up when we see this continuing, ironically, evolution of Mormon doctrine that is revealed by the creator who does not use evolution, according to the orthodoxy. You see the conundrum here. It's a very real one, and it does bother a lot of people. So just so we're aware of that. So, And we commonly hear well-meaning people say, well, that's your interpretation of the scripture, while also claiming I'm not interpreting the scripture. I'm going to tell you hands down right now, I'm always interpreting the scripture. The scripture itself is someone's interpretation that just happened to be written down anciently and collected into the book of Scripture, just like the Doctrine and Covenants was, right? But everything in the Doctrine and Covenants is simply an interpretation. Isn't that amazing? When you really take a step back and recognize what kind of materials here are we dealing with, we find that nothing is necessarily pristine, original unchanged truth or unchanging truth. That's important to keep in mind. We also have to keep in mind the political fiascos through the millennia that have happened with certain books being made into the scripture and other books being excluded because of someone's bias or prejudice, or someone had a different Theological interpretation of what supposed to be was ancient in Abraham's day, but they put their interpretation down 100 AD and that made it into the New Testament. But other views did not make it into the New Testament. So once we understand the actual real context of the scripture is all interpretation then I think we have the basis for hopefully moving forward. But the thing with the scripture that I've discovered, and it kind of makes it fun. It it does. I I, I have not just thrown away the scriptures. No, they're fun to study too. But the thing that's interesting is it's kind of like a, a, a one step forward, two step backs type of thing when new information comes in or two steps forward and then one step back. And so, You know, we love this theme of progress, progress. We want to move forward. We want to keep learning, expanding. You know, knowledge is the name of the game. But how much of what we thought we know didn't end up being so? Yeah, I would say easily 90% of our knowledge. And I know people hate hearing that, but sucks to be you if you're in that program because. That's the fact. Really seriously, what we knew about the universe just 100 years ago, the vast majority of 90% of our knowledge has disappeared. You think today's knowledge isn't going to disappear in another 100 years? I would propose that's pretty naive. So then this gets into the question, well, then what is knowledge? and that's deep so i will save that for other videos also right wow i mean but but really seriously the the selection of scripture let me grab a book hold on i know where it's at hold on um, i'm not going away i promise um, this is really really important oh and i don't have this other book here oh yes i do yes i do i have both of them Good. One of the best elucidators of this particular topic is none other than Bart Ehrman. And and seriously, you ought to read Bart Ehrman. The Lost Christianities, one of his books, The Lost Christianities, The Battles for Scripture, and The Faiths We Never Knew. There were far more groups of peoples who were fighting over different groups of scriptures than even official church history has allowed to come down through the ages for us to read. Bard Ehrman has been uncovering that kind of material. His other book is The Lost Scriptures, and these are the books that did not make it into the New Testament. Now, his focus here is the New Testament. Testament, and that's only a third of the biblical record. The same issue can be had with the Old Testament as well. I mean, why was the Genesis creation chosen in the first place? Margaret Barker, in her book, The Older Testament, shows that the actual text, the philosophy, the history, the idea of the book of Genesis itself. Is a late comer on the scene. Now, that should shock us. And the earliest, the earlier other view that got stamped out way back anciently, came back up through an in and resurrected, as it were, in of all things the Enoch literature. Now, that will make some fantastic videos. That kind of stuff really turns me on. And I've got the Hebrew Enoch and the the Greek Enoch. I've I've got a, a lot of the Enoch texts, and I've done some studying in them in the past. But that's some fun stuff. But So again, this selection. We are reading Genesis because from ancient times, that's the only one they preserved. But that doesn't mean it's the only one. That doesn't mean it's the correct one. And that doesn't mean it's the the best one either. But it's what we have. This is what makes comparative religious studies so fascinating and interesting, you guys. is because we can compare. That was one of the most beautiful parts of the interview of Bill Moyers with Joseph Campbell when he interviewed him on the power of myth series if you have not seen that series you need to go to youtube and look that up and read it or watch it it is fantastic his book the power of myth is one of the truly stellar texts in all of literature and i just had it the other day where did i put it anyway you probably all seen it now i'm being overly dramatic i apologize it's, it's my way of doing things. I apologize. Anyway, The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. They begin by comparing creation stories of the biblical text and one of the American Indian creation stories. Fantastic stuff. When Joseph Campbell begins uh, comparing the Navajo sand paintings with the spiritual interpretations of the West in their scripture, which the Navajo did not have, man, it just opens up. It opens up. It opens up. It makes it exciting to study religion. And I know there's going to be people who want to kick me in the teeth for that one. But Richard Dawkins is full of bullshit. Just because he decides to narrow his mind and shut it down doesn't mean all the rest of us have to follow. Religion can be a very uplifting study. I'm here to say that. So anyway, and I'm not here to pick on Richard Dawkins or challenge him, even though I will in future videos, because I think he's gotten off way off base in his dogmatism and in his narrowness of interpreting science. Yes, I did not misspeak. I mean that. I mean his narrowness of the interpretation of science is way off kilter. So anyway, to get back to the discussion, boy, there's one of my diatribes. I apologize. I feel bad about this, but I will get over it. So what we have is narrow bias. Uh, not in a negative sense, but, but biased doctrinal influences floating around there, vying for our attention about how do we interpret this book of creation we call Genesis. And the Jewish interpretation, because they do go to the Hebrew and the Greek, Now, again, the church does not encourage us this way. And in that respect, it really misses the boat in so many regards. Studying the scriptures in the originals, I think Joseph Smith had the right idea. He had his finger on the pulse there. However, that died out. I'm here to tell you the Jewish Kabbalistic interpretation in the Zohar, in the Bahir, and in the Sefer Yetzirah, the interpretation of Genesis coupled with, and I just happened to have her book here, coupled with my favorite Kabbalistic author, Leonora Leet, the secret doctrine of the Kabbalah, rediscovering the key to Hebraic, sacred science. This is one of the deepest, most profound, beautiful books I have ever read on the book of Genesis from the Jewish view. Fantastic. This is Genesis 655, not Genesis 101 like you get in Mormonism. This is spectacular materials. And then her follow-up book and I don't have the cover, so I'll show you the spine, The Universal Kabbalah by Leonora Leet. This is a very deep book. This is a doctorate-level book, if you're going to go into this, which you should, because she begins to enwrap sacred geometry with the creation story. Now, you never got that in Mormonism. There are entire dimensions of understanding Genesis that you will never get in organized religion because you didn't get this information if you were a Baptist. You don't get this information if you're atheist. You sometimes don't even get this information if you're Jewish, believe it or not. So this theme of the interpretation of Genesis in the beginning, when we read anything, and this is on page one sixty six of this book, Evolution and Mormonism. Now that I'm done with my introduction, after a half an hour of which I hope you'll enjoy. Hey, Radio Free Mormon, good to see you, brother. Good job. Yes, yes. Guten Morgen, header Amigo. Oh boy, that's mixing languages, isn't it? <laughs> that's my that's my obligation. I am the Backyard Professor. I am the dingling here. Uh, so, anyway, uh, this idea of in the beginning. Now, Hugh Nibley, in one of his essays, just to show the brethren how off base they are in so many ways, he asked, which beginning? I mean, that's a showstopper. You go, wait, in the beginning. But realize this is a translation <laughs> here we go from another language this is why the jews interpretation of genesis is so much more complete full beautiful enlarging to me than anything i've read from mormon scholars but we, we want to, we're, this series is about the uh, science versus Mormonism idea, right? So, Tom Miller, good to see you, man. So, we, when we read anything, including descriptions, the they a personal interpretation, whether in, intentional or not, occurs at the very outset. And that does not exclude the Brethren. True story. Now, recognize, realizing that one way that this nuance of in the beginning can occur, which has occurred, is based upon Joseph Smith's complete rejection of creation ex nihilo. And that gives us philosophical nuances. That too is a private interpretation. And you say, now, hold on, Professor. Hold on, BYP. Yeah, baby, I'm holding on. The very concept of creation ex nihilo was a particular early Christian father's interpretation to which I would say, correct, that's right. There is also the eternal concept where there never was a beginning, (laughs) See, see what I mean? There, there's no hard and fast rules here. There's no rock-solid anchor to plant your feet. Okay, let's start correctly with the correct interpretation of the scripture. I'm not so convinced that can be done. And you say, well, for Pete's sake, how long have we had the book of Genesis, right? Can't we at least start out right? Well, my response to that would be, well, yeah, it would be nice if we could. But that's the question. I'm not going to beg the question. I'm going to approach it. I'm going to say, so far, I haven't seen that happening. You see how this concept that we only have four percent? Oh, man, I dropped Leonore Leet and bar here on their heads. You see how we have this concept we have no idea comes into play, not only in the physical world, not only on our planet, not only concerning chemistry and the origins of life, not, not only concerning evolution, but cosmology and yes, scripture, we have no idea. This is the, this is the epistemological humility that we truly need to approach all these topics with. And yeah, it's kind of fun to sometimes pretend like, yeah, baby, I've got a clue. I know the issue. I know the issue. You do within a limited confine, right? That's why I take issue with Richard Dawkins and his version of not only evolution, but atheism and religion itself but he that doesn't mean he doesn't make good points i just can't follow him anymore i I actually never could never did but so (laughs) what does in the beginning mean to you this is the pertinent question i'm just trying to explain what it means to me right there's a whole backlog of enormous amounts of information we need to at least be aware of that exist in order to answer that very loaded question (laughs) because in the beginning is not gonna mean the same thing to everybody i so promise there are thousands, millions of pages of argument on this question just on the internet, let alone what's in print. So (laughs) what does that mean to you? (laughs) That's a question, huh? To someone else. See, I love how they're approaching this though, you guys, because they're not being dogmatic and they are saying we do better to assess, recognize, and realize that there are other readings that make as much sense to those people as ours do. So rather than calling them idiots, stupid, like sometimes I do, I know I add hominem to brethren far too much. I recognize that. I confess my sin. I repent. I try. I really do. Sometimes they give me no choice but to call the spade a spade, however. But, yeah, when we when we begin to say, well, you're wrong and I'm right, that ain't necessarily so either. You're different in your understanding and level of grasping than I am. Now, that's much more plausible. That uh, would be the realistic approach, right? I, I mean, I've been commenting on Genesis 1 and 1, uh <laughs> That's John one and one. And this is Bereshit bara Elohim et et In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. Uh, so I, 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 the Greek and the the Hebrew of this gives us different nuances than the English translation, and we still are no closer to understanding it. In other words, the Bible can be deep. Don't let people fool you when they say, oh, yeah, it's just old wives' tales. It's just old mythology. Oh, it's vastly more than that, for my take, you know. That's as, that's as kind of short-sighted. Uh, narrow-minded, bigoted as the Baptist preachers or the Mormon leaders or whatever say, oh, well, that's just science. That's just the theories of men mingled with Scripture. Hold on, cowboy. (laughs) Don't get your panties in a wad, Dallin Oaks. Stay calm. You know, there's a lot more here than meets the eye is what I'm telling you. Right? And you wouldn't think it unless you thought it. And most people don't give this stuff the time of day. Well, for me, it's fun. So what the heck? I apologize if I'm boring you to death. Hey, Doug Vincent. How you doing, my friend? Oh, TP. Good to see you. Um, Okay, we're all here. Radio Free Mormons ranting and raving, which is always a good thing. I love it when that man rants and raves. I learn more from his ranting and raving than I do scripture almost. Just nobody tell him I said that. (laughs) So um, were these three words, in fact, intended to begin the Bible? Now, there's the question that I just recently asked earlier, and Margaret Barker says no to that question. Now, understand, she is a valid Christian minister over across the Atlantic Ocean, and she has written a lot of books. And her interpretation of Genesis is like no one else's I've ever read. And it resonates with me. Now, that's shocking. You think you're shocked. Look, I have to deal with my own shock, right? So we're getting such a magnificent um. How do I put this? A magnificent overarching mega view. I'll put it that way. Joseph Smith's understanding of the Hebrew in Genesis. Okay, there's one. The Jewish Kabbalistic approach, especially in the Zohar. Oh my glory. There's another one. Now we have Margaret Barker's understanding there's another. You begin to get all these views who bring in certain disciplines that they themselves are familiar with the most, right? So they're all going to differ. Now, the atheist, unfortunately, I'm not going to say stupidly, but it's close. They just say, oh, well, that's all just contradictory. Therefore, it's all false. I can't go that direction anymore. At one time I probably did. I'm sure I did as an apologist. There's more to it than that. See, they are thinking logically, but even logic has its limits. True story. All the philosophers know this. Apparently the materialists today don't but all the rest of them do. So there are some real subtle nuances going on here. Clearly, these words in the beginning were not the precise words of Moses or another author used to start the Bible. Ah, so now, see, this is their approach. What they're going to try to do is gently inform their Mormon readers that, "Ha, ha yeah, you're literal. Ha ha, yeah, that's stupid. That philosophy, that system, because Moses didn't author Genesis. Now, that's realistic. See, the atheists have taken this as a basis for saying the Bible's faults. Oh, that's just naive. Sorry, I can't help it. I, I, come on. At least keep sophisticated a little bit, in my opinion. But the idea that Moses didn't author him, now we're going to get Um, a clearer, more realistic approach view of the Bible because the entire canonization now, not necessarily the authorship, but David Bockevoy in his excellent book on the Old Testament, you ought to read that. uh, The entire canonization of the Old Testament didn't even begin until 500 B.C., Well, they're supposed to be talking about events here in Genesis that happened thousands of years before that. Well, no, they couldn't have known what happened. This is why the patriarchs, for instance, in the Old Testament are given to us as myths, stories. This creation is a story. Let's keep that in mind. It's not a science, not meant to be, but it is a story. So, the King James Version of the Bible has come down to us by several steps of translation. Were all of those accurate. So, see, now they're taking the Joseph Smith approach. We believe that we accept the Bible as far as it is translated correctly. But you notice what he left out of that, and which Bart Ehrman uh, talks about significantly. Okay, there may be parts that aren't translated correctly, but that's the smaller issue, right? Because what about the compilation? Man, we now know there were over 46 different Gospels in the New Testament time. Only four of them made it into the canon. Well, this is what we're now discovering happened with the Old Testament records also. Yeah. After all, they didn't actually Hebrew... Keeping track of the Hebrew itself, it did not begin in Adam's day. I've got bad news for you. If you think Adam was reading and writing Hebrew, you've been misinformed. If you think Abraham, a thousand years later, was reading and writing Hebrew, you've been misinformed. That's a later come down out of the Phoenician Canaanitish linguistic tree, right? So Hebrew is not even the original language. <laughs> See, this is where the, this is where the orthodoxy of the Jewish view comes into question. Now it's an absolutely beautiful language and I love it. I, I don't know it very well, but I love it. And I love doing gematria with it. And I love how the rabbis dissect the letters in each piece and bit piece and part of the Hebrew means something by itself actually very similar to what Joseph Smith was doing in the Egyptian alphabet and grammar, taking apart the Egyptian hieroglyphs. So that kind of, you know, now I'm really on it. I I am off in left field. I apologize. So let me get back to snuff. But all of this is relevant with this very loaded question. What does the, in the beginning, Bereshit bara Elohim, what does that mean to you? Well, it means something different for absolutely every person I would propose. And that doesn't mean everybody's being dumb, morons, and wrong. No, no. No, that just means we come together and have a discussion. Instead of worrying about corrupt doctrine, brethren, forget that noise. Let's discuss this. Let's talk it out. That's much more enjoyable and pleasant. I'm quite worried about whether the Holy Ghost is going to testify to you that your theory is correct or else someone else's is. Throw that. Don't go there. <laughs> Let's do this more realistic. So was the complete story as intended by the original authors carried down to us intact Or were parts left out? And Margaret Barker comes back into focus here. You damn right the complete story was changed. And yes, there were stuff left out. And yes, there were inclusions that were not part of the original, which intended to refute the book they rejected and instead chose Genesis. You see how involved this stuff can get. This is really complex. So when I hear someone say, oh yeah, the Bible, a bunch of old wise tales, that tells me vastly more about that person's intellect than it does about the scripture. I promise. Someone needs to broaden their reading if they're going to approach the Bible. If not, don't. There's no condemnation for me on that. But if you're going to get on this bandwagon, then you better get your butt into gear and do some very broad reading from many, many fields, authors, and disciplines. Or I might have to laugh, and I don't want it. I'd rather have a discussion. So Brigham Young said now and, and he quotes Brigham Young. Now, yeah, I know we love to hate him. Yeah, we, we make fun of him, we tease him, we we say some of his doctrines, some of his practices are heinous. I get all of that. Right now we're studying Genesis. So and and these guys are the Mormon biologists, so let's see what they say Brigham Young said as for the bible account of the creation that account has been handed down from age to age and we have got it no matter whether it is correct or not love him or hate him he's got that spot on right that's in the journal of discourses 14 pages 115 through 117 if you really want to look it up i didn't so i don't know but i'll take their word for it for now it's not critical so uh in the beginning, God, better sheath, Elohim. Now, Elohim, of course, is the Hebrew word. Yes, the Jews still love to translate it in the singular. Yes, there are some applications where Elohim can be plural. I get all that. Uh, incidentally, Michael Heiser, an evangelical scholar, very excellent on the Council of the Gods, In his new book, The Unseen Realm, one of my dear friends off the internet sent this book to me. Don't count him out. This man is incredible with the Hebrew and he definitely shows Elohim is plural. There is no question about it. So whether you like him or not, One possible interpretation of Joseph Smith's interpretation in the book of Abraham about the gods. Yeah, he was using the plural aspects of Elohim. Was it in context? I don't know. I haven't studied that in as much depth as, say, a David Bacavoy or others, So, or a... Ben Spackman. He's real good. He's a good LDS scholar and author. Dan McClellan. Uh, I got his master's thesis. Man, he's really good with the Hebrew. So yeah, we're dealing with nuances that we don't have to worry about at this point for this Sunday school lesson. We're only going to go 200,000 feet deep, not 88 light years. So that's the way it goes. So what do we mean by God? That is she th- bara Elohim uh, in the beginning God organized and Joseph Smith wrote down the Hebrew bara, uh organized pre-existing material now <clears throat> that is one of the ancient interpretations. that really that is that is a valid interpretation uh from antiquity. There's no question about that. They did not have the ex nihilo. That was a later Christian development. So, I mean, come on, give credit where credit's due. Joseph Smith got it right. Okay, let's move on. Well, does the term God mean the same to each of us? Absolutely not. And this is one of their points. This is why they bring it up. Uh, this is the most argued word in all of human history. And it, in some respects, I agree with the atheists that uh, it, it It has lot, one, it has no explanatory power. Look, you don't have to be an atheist to recognize that's actually pretty realistic view, right? Uh, They got that right. Let's just give them the credit for it. There's no harm in that. It's actually one of the more overused words and the most under understood words in the English language. So yeah, so you get into sticky stuff here. Uh, let us examine this by considering the natural law, the law of gravity. If we can, cons- <sighs> okay. If we consider God's relationship to the law of gravity, at least four possibilities come to mind. Every time I jump off something, God personally makes sure I land on the ground. He is directly involved in everything I do. What we call gravity is actually God pulling me to the ground. <sighs> yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I. I'm not impressed with this analogy. However, now, now later on, grab, and this is on page 167 of this book. Uh, Gravity is in some way an intrinsic property of the universe, perhaps even co-eternal with God. Ah, Except, and, and you know why they're taking this approach, right? Because that's the approach Joseph Smith took, Right. But modern cosmology now, hang on. And yeah, I know there's some issues with Stephen Hawking's view of the grand design of the universe and all that. His black holes isn't wrong. We've got that figured out now. And now, of course, this, this theme of the singularity at the beginning of the Big Bang, We, the Big Bang model, let's face it, for modern cosmologists, this is the most realistic approach so far. And we do have four or five really good converging pieces of cosmological evidence based on direct observation. Now, it is true that there is extrapolation. There is guesswork. There is some hypothesizing. There are also some elements of this that we cannot reproduce in the laboratory. We get all that. We understand all that. The singularity at now you go down to the Planck constant, the Planck level, which is an extremely absurdly small number. I think it's one times 10 to the uh, negative 43rd, if I remember correctly. It's been a while, so forgive me, don't quote me direct. But at, at that small of a place, we genuinely have our singularity, even though the singularity objective, the singularity itself, uh it may end up being more of a guess than a knowledge, right? And it's not because we're not there. That, that stupid Christian approach to evolution is idiotic. You know, you weren't there when the dinosaurs evolved. How do you know? Yeah, I'm not going there with this cosmological point about singularity. At the quantum level, our modern physics breaks down, okay? So Einstein's relativity has, again, here we go, you guys, limited applicability. On the grand large scale, it's pretty good crap. You get down to this Planck constant, you know, at the Big Bang, a new, a different mathematics, a different physics. Physics make no sense at that point. And I'll do some videos on this because I happen to be studying just this issue. Uh, Gravity couldn't be eternal because at the singularity in the quantum level, there were no particles yet there was nothing for gravity to act on now this is one interpretation. i get it yeah don't don't take my head off relax calm down i'm not being orthodox i'm not being dogmatic but the one interpretation that we have the best mathematical basis i'll put it that way at for now i'll put it that way gravity has not always existed any more than matter has and you say, now hold on. You're just an idiot. You don't know jack spit about science because the law of matter is that it can never be created and never be destroyed, it is eternal. <sighs> I'll just say it this way, and then I'll move on back to Genesis. That, too, is an interpretation based on what we know so far. But remember, we don't know very much. We're only at 4% of our knowledge at best. So stay calm, carry on. <laughs> Get it? Carry on. Yeah, okay. So um, I just wanted to throw that in there. Their analogy of gravity, that that is the reason why I don't believe their analogy is nearly as good as it could have been, right? And and I really did not mean to get off on a fluff about this cosmology stuff and quantum gravity and black holes and stuff. And, And yet that's inevitable, right? And you say, well, Genesis doesn't tell us anything about our modern astronomy. Well, duh, why in the hell would you expect that? Well, God, the creator was supposed to reveal. Check your assumptions here, guys and gals uh yeah just check your assumptions stories we're dealing with stories right that's what our modern cosmological model is right now scientists use models to explain what we can't see or can't experience because it happened billions of years ago so we have a model That's a story. So don't think we've matured enough and grown up enough that now we don't just tell stories. The hell we don't. (laughs) The Big Bang itself is a model based on converging points of various kinds of evidence that we have. But don't kid yourself. That too is a story of what? Creation. I I just want to throw that out there, just so you know, right? So, uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven. See, notice they're taking it piece by piece, step by step. And this is good. Uh, and the creation of the earth, it, was it done by angels? And You know, in the endowment, it's done by Jehovah, Elohim, and Michael, and so on and so on. So, uh, so, the story is somewhat, uh, it's human-centric. <laughs> The story, the story from the scripture is human centric, uh, b- because we got to get us in here, right? Here we are. <laughs> Somehow we've got to be important enough to be a part of this, right? Okay, so here we are. Yeah, uh, and that's yeah, and the earth, and then the, yeah, this this is so interesting. Now, let me take a drink before I get here. Okay. The uh, the one issue. Hey, Tom Miller. I don't know if I said hi to you or not yet. Hey, Ray Kime, Thank you for showing up. Good to see you here. Uh, I always try to say hi to everybody. Oh, hey, Monkey King 11. Welcome. I just saw your name just now. So I probably, I'm not trying to ignore you guys. I'm just ignoring you guys because I'm trying to tell you all the silliness that I'm learning, which isn't much, according to uh, what's his nose. I still have no idea. And I've got a physicist to back me up on that. Now, he's not advocating ignorance either. He's saying, let's try to change this by opening our minds back up and studying as much as we can, which is my thesis here today. If you don't believe me, go back to the first of this video and watch through it again. So, okay. And the earth was without form. This is one of the favorite parts. Of Mormons, because I think they've got a good point here. I, you know, give credit where credit's due. I really do think they've got a good point here. The earth was without form. Boy, darkness was upon the face of the deep. The spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, etc. So if the earth was without form, they ask, and this is on page 168 of Meldrum and Stevens Evolution of Mormonism, page 168. So if the form if the earth was without form, then What does the word deep mean? Notice how they're explaining this. You never got this out of a student manual if you were raised Mormon. They didn't give a flip about actually learning. They just wanted to instill the doctrine into you, right? And their doctrine, 99.999% of it turns out to be not doctrine at all, but their own speculation. So, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. What does the deep mean? And how was there water if there was no form? Good question. You see, by slowing down and quit worrying about what the doctrine is, let's read what the text says, right? The earth was without form and void, darkness was upon the face of the water or on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. So, if there's no form, now it does say here that the earth was without form, and yet it does talk about the waters, and it's talking about it before it existed, right? Was the earth even a sphere? If not, how could there be water, especially water with a face? Why waters and not just water? Yeah, it is a plural. Mayim, hasha is the Hebrew word for heaven, and mayim is, mayim is the word for water, and, and it can be plural. Um, so that's interesting. Why the plural, the waters and the land are not separated until verses 6 and 9. Abraham 4, 2 states, and the earth after it was formed was empty and desolate, right? So what they're trying to do is instead of instill deep, correct doctrine, in other words, just shut up, quit thinking, and accept what the brethren teach you, which none of us do anymore, thank goodness, he, they are at least saying stop and think while you're reading because there are very interesting enigmas in this. And I like this because it's basically a Jewish mindset in the Kabbalistic sense of doing the gematria of the Hebrew here and i'm not going to tell i i'm not going to get into that i'll do that in in videos in the future too they each hebrew letter has a specific numerical you know this this is one way to pull more meaning out of the text than what you would in either the actual hebrew or in a translation see the translation destroys all the clues to the hebrew gematria so you automatically miss that dimension it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not gematrically when the jews Analyze this stuff they can tie this stuff into other scriptures that give you a more full meaning which they really do explicate they explain they elaborate on in the Zohar outrageously amazingly wide and deep it's fun stuff but you don't get that as a Mormon what they're they're just simply saying slow down think ask some critical questions. Gee, I wonder why the brethren can't do this, right? Because they don't want you arguing. They want you to believe so that you'll pay your tithing and go to church. Again, that falls into the brethren are not in this for the truth, but the scholars are. The scholars are. So now it's interesting in dividing the light, the mehavdil, uh, in dividing the light from the darkness, This was before there was a sun. So what kind of light is the book of Genesis talking about? Orson Pratt in his book on cosmology, it's very rare. I had it at one time and I don't know what happened to it. I'm really upset. I lost it. But uh, he talks about the latent light on the molecular, on the atomic level. I doubt that's what it was, but it was a good guess. At least he was thinking through stuff. Brigham Young, of course, it was too deep for Brigham Young. He, told Orson to knock it off so uh yeah there was still no sun yet there was light the term day is first mentioned here oh yeah and God said let there be light yeah he order why he order Elohim uh, yeah he or why he orders how the Hebrew goes let there be light and there was light So in dividing the light from darkness, there was no sun. The term day is first mentioned here, even before the sun was made. Now, and of course, the atheist will jump on this and see, see, this isn't a very scientifically accurate text. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I I, I, Come on, that's a straw, man. Come on. This is a story in antiquity. There is an Entirely different meaning than worrying about scientific correctness. I mean, that is literally as lame as the Mormon criticism. Well, that's not doctrinally correct. Who cares? The plain fact of the matter is this entire first chapter and I will do a video on this if you want, and soon if you think I'm kidding, is expressed with a Jewish concept that Leonor Elite has discovered ties in with sacred geometry and music. So, we have to, instead of judging the text by our correct revealed doctrines or by our logical, rational science, what if we was to ask what was the ancient author's intent on writing this story in this manner? And when you take that view, the book of Genesis chapter 1 makes phenomenal coherent sense with the intent of what the author was portraying, and it directly has to do with geometry and music and that changed my whole outlook on the entire Bible. And Leonor Leet expresses this and explains it in exquisite detail, which I will be happy to do a video for you. In fact, I'll do that next week if you want to see it, because that is too good to lose. That completely transformed my whole understanding of not only the Bible, but of our ridiculously insipidly narrow-minded, idiotic, judgmental approaches to it from our so-called modern knowledge. And this is just basic stuff too. It's not like it was a PhD who wrote down Genesis 1 and 1, but it is 100% perfectly consistent with the intent of the ancient author paralleling it with geometry, and music. And that was a hell of an eye-opener for me. That's when I quit judging the Bible from my so-called superior modern knowledge, because I was vastly ignorant of the actual intent. I'm laying the lead open my eyes to that. So I love that woman for that. Unfortunately, she died just shortly after publishing her last book. So anyway, yes, I'm I i I'm just telling you, uh, we, we have a lot of stuff to learn uh, to quit being so judgmental. In our day, unfortunately, uh, in our day, for whatever reason, we have, uh, hold on, I got to wipe off my camera. We have become far too self-righteous arrogant and judgmental against other cultures uh simply because the bumbling new atheists say that's how to act and and i am in vehement disagree with them at that at this point yes christopher hitchens was fun to listen to yes richard dawkins knows his biology i'm more than happy to give credit where credit's due but when it comes to the bible those guys are freaking idiots When you examine it from those who know the Bible best, it really does have a sense. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. It doesn't mean, oh, at last we have the truth. No, but there is a deep, impressive coherence. It's just not the one we think it ought to have. But that's a pretty asinine way to judge the scripture from what we think it should have said. (laughs) That is the height of arrogance in my opinion. What did the author want? Yeah. Anyway, I'm on a diatribe, but this is a very important one, in my opinion. Now, the one thing... I, I'm going to skip this because I've been ranting and raving so much. This is the one point in this book that helped me keep this book. Because, I mean, you know, you learn about Jeffrey Mildred. That, I mean, the guy is still looking for Sasquatch, for Bigfoot, right? And, of course, he just completely... He apparently killed his scientific career and yet in a way it's helping make his scientific career. But wow. I mean, it's not for me to judge. I get that, but I, I, just because he does really believe in Sasquatch, Bigfoot, whatever, and he's out there looking for it in the state of Washington and Oregon and some parts of Idaho and all that. Yeah, all right, we can allow a guy his eccentricities. But what he says here, using the biological evolutionary understanding with the scripture, was exquisite so don't judge his book on evolution with his research on Sasquatch right everybody has a chance to be a dingling I was an apologist once I'm grateful that people have been very charitable toward me on that score right that doesn't mean what I'm saying today is complete bullshit because I used to be an apologist correct do you follow me on that logic I hope so so I'm going to do the same with Jeff Meldrum. I'm well aware of, of his approach but this is what is just astounded me okay we're to the point we're to the point to where we get this ridiculous mormon doctrine that there was no death before the fall and uh bruce hamaconky was huge on this and he was so Pompous in his authority, stamping out anybody else who disagreed or anybody else who tried to reason with him, that he lost his entire audience once he died. Right now, we can say, Yo, hey, I don't even want to read that clown. Right? Same with his father in law, Joseph Fielding Smith. The idea here, and unto Adam, he said, Thou hast. Because thou hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, Thou shalt not eat, uh, cursed is the ground, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. From dust you came, from dust you're going to return. Now you have to work your butt off for a living, etc. You're going to live in sorrow, etc. I'm going to kick you out of this garden. The snake deceived your wife, and you followed your wife, etc. Forget all the theological noise. Here is the point that I want to read. I hope I've got this marked right. I'll start reading and get to this point because this is powerful. So we need to talk about the state of Adam and Eve before being placed into the garden. It's critical to the whole issue of evolution and the creation. Now, they do give a a particular interesting Mormon twist, which I don't accept. The fall changed Adam and Eve from immortality to mortality. How that does, we don't know. We're not quite sure how that would work, but that's the theory here, right? Okay, so let's grant that for the sake of the argument. I want to get this because it gets such a good dig against Bruce Armikaki and the brethren and their false doctrine of no death before the fall. Uh, Here we go. Well, they were immortal by their circumstances. In other words, partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. Either Adam and Eve were inherently immortal or else they had taken of the tree of life and they were immortal. Regardless, the scriptures do not inform us one way or the other. The common assumption is that they were inherently immortal. And Bruce says, the initial creation was paradisical. Death and mortality had not yet entered the world, brethren. There was no mortal flesh upon the earth for any form of life. I love mimicking him because he's just so wrong Christ in the creation that's in his article Christ in the creation and then he quotes 2 Nephi 222 to support his case right which we have discussed uh, Robert Woodward speaking of Adam and Eve stated they were placed upon earth as immortal beings in the beginning uh, and then his statement has no qualifiers and no reference in spite of the belief that Adam and Eve we're placed on earth as immortal beings. We are aware of no scripture or any other revelation that makes this claim. Isn't that interesting? That's a tradition, not a scripture. Fun to know. It is our opinion that the notion that Adam and Eve were inherently immortal is one of those common held tenets based on tradition that has no foundation in officially revealed truth. If Adam and Eve were not inherently immortal, oh, and this is on page 181 of Evolution Immortal. I'm sorry, I should have gave you the page number. If Adam and Eve were not inherently immortal, then they might have been created as mortal beings and maintained in an immortal condition by being placed in the Garden of Eden. We've heard that before or placed in a position where they had access to something such as the fruit of the tree of life, which technically was entheogenic, according to recent researches and speculations. So here we go with the mushroom theme again. Right. I've talked about this in previous videos. These guys don't. That's just me interjecting. And this kept them in an immortal state. Do scriptures and modern revelation support this interpretation? Yeah, whatever. Sure. Why not? So they make this big whip to do about this, uh, If they were inherently immortal, or if they became immortal, and it only if they depended on the tree of life to maintain their immortality, would it play a role in their choice, etc. The part about no death before the fall is that they mention, and I can't find it, man. Doggone it! I had this marked. Oh, hold it, hold it. Hold on. I've got some heavy underlining and some words here. Let me look at this real quick. Our scriptures consistently support the notion that uh, this is on page 185. I've skipped a lot. I probably skipped the part I wanted to read. <laughs> oh, So the tree of life probably was the source of immortality in the garden. So our scriptures consistently support the notion that Adam and Eve were not created in an inherently immortal state, but were maintained in an immortal state by the tree of life. Okay, that's interesting. And they were allowed to exercise their agency. As a result of their decision to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, They were expelled from the garden, so they didn't have access to the tree of life, and therefore that was the source of their immortality. So they fell from being immortal to mortal. So they achieved their human stature through evolution. Adam and Eve could have been placed in the garden and ate the tree of fruit of life. So they went through an evolutionary phase before they became immortal, is these guys' contention. This still isn't what I wanted to get to. Daggummit! Here's the point. I can't read it because I can't find it. The way they worded it was pretty good. With Bruce McConkie's tradition, an emphasis on there was no death before the fall, yet Adam and Eve ate, the living fruit. What about the fruit? That killed the fruit. When you eat the fruit, it dies, right? And you throw away the core. Tradition says an apple Jews say is a fig. You know, some say white grapes. Truly, seriously, like the white fruit in Nephi's vision and Lehi's vision on the tree of life. Yeah, that fruit really was white. Others interpret that again as a mushroom, the Amanita Muscara, <laughs> which is really interesting. So, anyway, see all these years, Nobody knows. Nobody saw the tree of life. We didn't live back in Adam these days, so we have to extrapolate. We have to go backwards, right? So. All life forms never died, according to McConkie. And yet Adam and Eve did what? They ate the fruit and it died. For whatever reason, that just struck me like a ton of brick when I read that. I go, oh, of course. See, McConkie just did not think through that process. And of course, he, he just outright rejected evolution. And we know now that. Uh, one of two things, either Adam lived a whole hell of a lot longer back there than we suspect instead of just 6,000 years or else there really were a lot of people, pre-Adamites, like B.H. Roberts said uh, in his fabulous study, The Truth, The Way, The Life, which is right here. I showed this to you yesterday. Fabulous stuff. So uh, that was basically what I wanted to get to is with the 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 exploration and joseph smith would not have argued against our scientists i don't believe um i i think because he, he came up with that so-called putative revelation, uh, seek knowledge out of the best books, knowledge about the earth, what's under the earth, above the earth, cosmology, etc. Joseph Smith was all for learning knowledge, and Brigham Young tried to follow suit. He said, we accept truth no matter what the source, even including from heaven and even including from hell, because the devil does have truth. But all truth is in Mormonism. That was his approach. He was trying to show the grandeur, the all inclusiveness of knowledge. And again, because of Joseph Smith's theology, a man is saved only so fast as he gains knowledge, which means the vast majority of modern Mormons today with their tinker toy kindergarten approach to doctrine, none of those guys are going to make it because they did not keep the School of the Prophets. They do not keep advancing the knowledge of the John Q. Public Mormons. The individual scholars from Utah State, BYU, et cetera, out there in New York, I'm thinking Richard Bushman, so on and so forth, those guys, they keep expanding their knowledge. And uh, and then when they give public talks about the church, of course, then they dumb it down again, of course, because they don't want to offend the Brethren. That's been the basic modus operandi of Mormon scholarship for the last, well, my lifetime, 60 years minimum, right? So, uh, that, was, that was my approach, is, is this theme of being flexible, being charitable to other views than our own, is probably really helpful for the discussion. And I confess, I have not been as charitable to Mormon leaders as I could be. I agree, I confess my sin, I repent of it here and now. I will work on that. Uh, So in order to, learning does uh, thrive best in a discussion type attitude, not an argument or a debate. Um, and with the realization and understanding that truly without question, no two people are going to actually, in realistic thinking, going to completely agree and think alike. that. Actually, that's impossible. I, I simply don't believe. It. So just to understand, differences does not all of a sudden give someone the right to say, oh, well. Satan is tempting you. Oh my gosh, you're losing the Holy Spirit of the Lord because you're going, you think differently than I do. You're not teaching true doctrine. That's the brainwash aspect of the organized religion with which I vehemently disagree. That's as charitable as I can put that. So in in the spirit of discussing now tonight, what I want to do is I will finally, and I'm going to try to wrap this up if I can, Uh, there's much more out of this one. Uh, I'm probably boring you all to tears with this topic. I want to move on to other topics, unless, of course, you do want me to keep talking. I mean, Henry B. Eyring had a hell of an argument with Joseph Fielding Smith himself. Joseph Fielding Smith was so close-minded he didn't learn one damn thing about science through the 60 years of his apostleship and prophethood. Uh, he argued with every scientist that came up in the church, and he lost every argument because of what we know about scientific reality now. That's why nobody reads Joseph Fielding Smith. That's his legacy. He blew it. Okay. So this gentleman here is really impressive to me, Stephen L. Peck, uh, at Evolving Faith. I wouldn't mind tonight talking a little bit more about his approach uh, to to uh, the idea of reverencing the creation just because we can now uh, destroy mountains to find oil and pollute our air and all that, must we destroy the beauty of the earth in order to enjoy our lives in it? You know, I'm I'm not screaming environmentalist here, but honestly, this is our home. And if you'll watch that video that I put out just earlier this morning on the Platonic and Neoplatonic view of the soul of the world, I took a hike yesterday, and I've got some fantastically beautiful video that I put in that video, and the majority of it is about the area I was in. I mean, I, I am really praying to God if he even exists that no one finds oil in this area under those mountains, because those dumb assholes will just destroy the gorgeous country just to make a buck. And that just irks me no end. So anyway, that's my approach. So, okay, you guys, uh, I'm going to close it out. We're at an hour and a half. I appreciate everybody showing up. Tom Miller. I don't know if I got to say hi to you or not. If I did great. If not, I'm saying hi to you now. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put you off until tonight at six o'clock for the fireside. I have a great lineup on the fireside with Stephen L. Peck, another Mormon biologist. And he really does give evolution. It's due. He, he is real. I love that about him. He's real about the religion. He's real about the doctrine. He's real about the science and the evolution. And that is why this book Is worth reading. And I will wrap this series up uh, with this book and uh, we'll take it from there. We'll see what else I can. Yeah, he keeps it real. (laughs) He does keep it real. I love that. So, okay, you guys, you have a great day for the rest of the day. I'm going to head out and get some more stuff done. And I will see you all tonight at 6 p.m. Yeah, baby. I've got to do that because that's what I'm known for, weirdly enough. (laughs) Oh, well. All right, you guys. I love y'all. Thanks for coming. I hope you had a fun time discussing and all that. I will uh, be back tonight at 6 p.m. Don't miss it.